this week I learned a new word, polyhedral. Yes, I guess I was sleeping through geometry class the day we covered that word. And some of you asked, what is a polyhedral? Have you ever had a Rubik's Cube? The original cube is a three by three. Uh, each of the sides has a different color, blue, yellow, red, orange, green, and white. By the way, the Japanese version of the Rubik's Cube swaps the blue and the yellow sides. Now, full disclosure, I've never solved the Rubik's Cube. Uh, when I was younger, I had one. Um, it, it, once I realized it was a lost cause, it just kind of went into my dresser drawer to gather dust until someone threw it away. Most likely when I left home, it just kind of got pitched. With that one, I don't remember what color, that one square sitting, uh, everything else basically fixed one color sitting in the wrong spot on one side, flip it around one color on the wrong, on the other side wrong, but I never solved it. So you understand my frustration when I read about someone like Yusheng Du, a young man from China who solved the Rubik's Cube in 3.47 seconds. <laughs> He's done. That's pretty fast. Even more incredibly, American Max Park solved one in 6.82 seconds using only one hand. I can't even imagine how you do that. But then there's Mohammed Kohli from India who solved the Rubik's Cube in 15.56 seconds, uh, a relatively pedestrian score. But I use that word on purpose because Mohammed was using only his feet. And that's unbelievable. Solving a puzzle like a polyhedral and doing it quickly is amazing. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. There is a puzzle that you must solve that you will never solve on your own. And it's not a Rubik's Cube. I wish it was. I wish that you could solve the problem all by yourself. And the problem I'm talking about is the puzzle of sin. Unfortunately, sin is incredibly difficult. As human beings, we are incapable of solving it ourselves. If you are doing well, I, I just want you to stop for a moment and think. If today you are doing well in your fight against sin, if that's even where you're at, then praise be to God. Because if you pat yourself on the back, then you still have some ways to go. Think about some sins. They're with us almost all the time. Impatience, lust, worry, sins of the tongue, pride. The only way to solve this problem is Jesus. In fact, the only way we're free from the power and penalty of sin over us is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in his death and resurrection gives us salvation from sin, at least positionally. It also promises that one day we will be free from sin and we will be perfect. That's perfect sanctification. But presently, we are not free from the presence of sin in this life. 
In Christ, we're way ahead of everyone else. But that's because of Christ. And without the gospel, man struggles to free himself out of a pit of sin, a pit of vices, and from the powerful clutch of sin's grip. No one can do it. Man, man's attempts to solve the problem of sin only leads to sin becoming stronger, its power over him gaining new strength. It is impossible. Few places in Scripture demonstrate that better than our text. Now our story has three major characters. Two of them are obvious. There's Judas. He's the character number one, of course. And he has a big problem, doesn't he? he, he verse 4, he says clearly, I have sinned because I have betrayed the innocent blood. Judas has a sin problem, and he says it right there in verse 4. I sinned. He sees his problem. He just doesn't know how to fix his problem. And where do Israelites turn when they have a problem with sin? Well, how about those chief priests? Well, maybe not them, because chief priests are character number two, and they have a problem with sin too. Judas was aware of his problem. How horrible that the priests were unaware of theirs. I guess, I guess they weren't fully unaware because Jesus had spent about three and a half years telling them what dirty, rotten sinners they were. They just didn't believe him. They were blind to their sin. But behind these two characters, there's one more character lurking in the shadows, and that's Satan himself. John 13, verse 2 states that Satan was already working in the heart of Judas when he betrayed Jesus. And of course, if you go back five chapters earlier, you see Jesus' own assessment of those priests, of those religious leaders, when he said, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he did not abide in truth. That's who you are. And of course, after he said this, they went out and took counsel about how they could kill him. How ironic. And so in this story, you have Judas and the priests, and with them is Satan all working together in symphony to murder Jesus Christ. And what this text demonstrates for us, it's clear. It's just crystal clear. Man is being destroyed by sin and his own attempts to rescue himself are worthless. So consider with me first, sin destroys everything it touches. Sin brings us literally to a state of desperation. It says in verse 3, Judas betraying Jesus Seeing he was condemned, he repented himself and he brought the 30 pieces of, of silver to the priest saying, I have sinned, I betrayed the innocent blood. Now G Judas is described in the text as the betrayer of Jesus. And can I tell you something? That will be his name for all eternity. He struck a bargain with the Jewish leaders to turn Jesus over to them to betray the Lord. And, and he will forever now be known as the betrayer. In fact, when the other disciple Judas is mentioned, 
John has to say, oh, by the way, it's not Iscariot. Don't get him confused. Jesus' half-brother was named Jude. There are very few people named Jude or Judas today because of Judas' character. He was a thief, John said. And in today's value, think about this. He sold Jesus for $15,000 American. That's all. He sold his soul for $15,000. And he realized too late what he had done, at least too late in his own mind. He tried to return the money and undo the transaction. My friends, it's clear this is not true repentance. If you read the, the word here uh, that, we, that we're looking at, where it says he repented himself, you need to think of regret or remorse. Actually, what Judas is saying is he regretted himself. Matthew gives us the progression here. He sees that Jesus is condemned, and he recognizes that the results of his actions, the outcome is terrible. And that leads Judas to make a confession, at least in two parts. He confesses that he sinned. This is the most common word in Greek for sin. Harmartone. Hamartion, it's the idea of I sin. John 3.23, for all have sin. Uh, John 6, or Romans rather, 3.23. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. That's our word for sin. So he realizes that he sinned, but his confession is inadequate. Why? Look at the text. Who does he confess to? Not the person he sinned against, and not to God, but to the chief priests. It's not directed toward God at all. Sin, even when it's against other people, is a sin against God. Thus, true repentance includes getting it right with others, but repenting of that sin before God. True repentance is coming to God in salvation, saying, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I deserve hell. But Jesus died on the cross to save me, and I'm turning to him in salvation. That's repentance from sin to salvation. And then repentance through the Christian life is very similar. It's not so much a need to gain forgiveness again. That's a misunderstanding of sanctification, I think. Rather, it is a need to turn from those things that offend a holy God and turn back to the right road of living right with God. And so it's constantly coming back to God and saying, Lord, I sinned. I wish I hadn't sinned. I'm so sorry I did. Help me not to do that again. Help me to live right before you. That's true repentance before God. That's not what Judas is doing here. In fact, really what's going on, he's trying to undo what he did, probably to alleviate his own guilt. When people think of sin... They often think, if I can just set it right again, then it's okay. I was in a store a week ago Saturday, and I heard a mom chastising her son. And he was whining a little bit. He wasn't, it was a little boy. And she said, nope, I told you, you get out of the cart and you run. Uh, that I'm going to put you back in the cart. And you got out of the cart, and what did you do? What did you do? Well, I'm starting to smile to myself. First of all, because I don't have to have this conversation anymore. <laughs> right? 
But but then I was, you know, I'm kind of happy. This mom is chastising her son. And then you got to, and then I put you down again. And what did you do? Okay, well, so so she went back and she, and he, she, and the little boy's just not answering at all. But he's kind of whining. And you ran again, didn't you? So you're going to sit in that cart, young man. So I turned around to see this, this, and she had given him her iPad. And so now he wasn't paying any attention to her. And I went, oh, brother, you've lost. <laughs> you did so good the first half. And then, you know. Blew it on the second half. See, what happens in the human mind is we tend to think if we could just make it right, then it's okay. If the bank robber could just return the money and say, you know, I didn't mean to tell you there was a gun in my pocket. Uh, you know, and there wasn't anyway. It was just a comb. But, you know, I, I give you all the money back, and some of it's, you know, kind of red from the dye pack, but I, I give it back to you. Could you just take it back, and we could just all make this go away? That's kind of how our culture thinks about sin. But it doesn't work like that. Sin, even when it's against other people, must include repentance to God. And when people think of sin, they're thinking of restitution. If I give the money back, maybe I can avoid jail. If, I, if the unkind words can be fixed with a few kind words... But Judas, he's sitting here thinking, you know, maybe there's a way of undoing what I did. I'll just return the money. I'll return the silver to the priests, and then I'll be able to, to, to just make it right. They'll let Jesus go. We'll kind of go back maybe to the upper room, go through that foot washing thing again. I'll respond like I should. Everything's going to be okay. I think that's kind of what's going through his mind because he is overwhelmed. He is in a state, friends, of desperation. And you see here, all of this totally misunderstands the nature of sin. Sin is not a mistake. It is not an oopsie. I didn't mean to do that. Sin is not just something you fall into. The founder of the university where I attended used to say that behind every fall of moral character is a long process of wicked thinking. And that's right on the money. We say, oh, let's give people a second chance. Let me tell you something, friends. It's not a second chance. It's a 5,000th chance. It's a 10 millionth chance. It's a second chance after someone gets caught. Someone comes before a judge. Judge, I'm going to give you a second chance. And I'm thinking, no, judge, you missed it completely. If he did this kind of crime, he'd been committing crimes you don't know anything about for a long time before this. And now you're going to give him a second chance. No, no, no. That's not why the law is written the way it is. And I'm going to tell you something. We are so enculturated to think the other way that even that strikes us a little bit strange. And I'm afraid the reason is, is because we, even as believers, do not fully grasp the awfulness of our sin. We don't fully, we're not fully aware of how greatly it offends a holy God. You can almost see Judas writing with his lawyer, this is not who I am as a person. You see, friends, sin, sin brings us to this state of desperation. Judas doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. 
And because of that, he, it leaves him, letter B, without any hope. He, he has the money. He's got the bag. It's open. Here's your money back. And, and the priests, the Jewish leaders, so what? So what? We don't care. You, you see to that. It's your money now. You do with it as you wish. We have what we want. The Jewish leaders reject his confession, saying to him, why should we care at all? They have no compassion on him whatsoever. No concern for him at all. You almost get the sense. Do you remember in the Old Testament when, when God is declaring to Israel why they are going to go into exile? He said, your, your princes are bad. Your prophets are bad. The people are bad. The priests are bad. Jeremiah's four complaints are against the ruling class. The kings, those are the princes, against the prophets and the priests, and then finally the people. They were all wicked, Isaiah says, from the top of their heads to the soles of their feet. They're one big sore. There's no place left. The heart is deceitful and incurably sick. That's what desperately wicked means, incurably sick. These people here are looking at him as the person of all people who should be able to say, let me help you with this. But instead, it's no, we don't care. They reject his confession. These are the false shepherds of Israel. Remember what Jesus said of the people? I, I have compassion on them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They have nobody to turn to. And they turn the responsibility back onto Judas. These are the worst sorts of priests. They're in it for their own gain. And, and so they say to him, it's your problem. It's your sin. It's your mistake. It's your error. You fix it. And that's where it has to remain. They give him no help. And all of this leads to destruction, let her see. He casts down the pieces of silver, verse 5. He departs, he, he goes out, and he kills himself. Hopeless people do desperate things. Judas throws down the money he craved just hours earlier. The blinders of sin are off now. He can see what he's done and what he's gained in the process. And now Judas has no money and no hope. And friends, if you realize what happens here with sin, when it brings you to the very end of it, it may seem so pleasurable at first. It may seem so good at first. When it brings you to the end, it's just despair and destruction. That's all it is. Young couples who are just starting off life together, they make choices that turn themselves away from God. If they're unbelievers, of course, that's normal. Sometimes even professing believers make these choices. And they do it because, you know, it's easier. Don't have to go to church on Sunday. I'll just sleep in. Don't, don't want to have to do the difficult discipleship things of reading my Bible and praying and all of the things that's just the disciplines necessary for godliness. It's, I'll just skip those things. 
And, and I'm going to tell you that at first, it's those choices and then the entertainment choices of the world come in and the lifestyle of the world comes in and it's pleasurable for a time, but it, you pay the piper in the end. You do. You can't get away with it. You can't just let sin go and get by. It has a cost. And he's hopelessly desperate. And desperate people, hopeless people who do desperate things, they do dangerous things. Going out into the night, Judas feels like he has no place left to turn. And the only remaining end for him is to end life, to end his own life himself. Now, I told you there were three characters. Who's really winning right here? Who's winning in Judas's heart? Satan. This is what Satan did. Satan led Judas to betray Jesus to Satan's friends, the priests and elders of Israel. He was working in their hearts to murder Jesus. This is Satan's doing. He's the father of lies. He's the ruler of the darkness of this world. He is the murderer, the wicked one, an unclean spirit, the prince of evil, our enemy, our adversary. Do you see what he does? Do you see what his works do? Do you understand what sin does? I sometimes as a pastor get so fearful when I watch middle-aged families, they have children at home, taking choices, making decisions that are so unwise, so foolish. I'm like, unless it's sinful, I probably won't say anything to you. I try to mind my own business the best I can. If it's sinful, I'll, I'll say something. But sometimes it's not sinful, it's just foolish. Because I sit there and I think, I, I just know where this ends up. You, you teach your children to devalue church or devalue holiness or devalue having spiritual convictions. Why would you be surprised if they grow up to be people who devalue church and devalue holiness and mock spiritual convictions? Why would you be surprised? This is what you taught them to do. And this is the danger for us. You see, this is what sin does. It may initially be fun, but it leads to desperation. And desperation turns to hopelessness, and hopelessness leads to destruction. Satan's weapon against us is sin. And as a believer, sin only has power over you as you let it rule in your life. And, and considering all the terrible things it does, why let it rule? Why leave it there? It's a tyrant. It's an evil despot. So you must turn from it continually every day, going back to God and saying, God, I just hate my sin. I don't want it in my life. I don't want to be a, a party to that. You must turn from it. And if you're an unbeliever, you're in a losing battle against your sin. It may seem right now that sin is the way of pleasure. Sin may bring you some satisfaction. You may even like it a little bit, but over time, you'll learn that that sin is what's hurting you, bringing you to a desperate state, leaving you with no hope, leading you down a path toward destruction. That's what Jesus said. The, the, the straight way, the narrow, the difficult path leads to life everlasting. But, but oh, that broad path, it's just the easy thing to do. And there are Christians, even believers today, who tolerate sexual sins in their life. 
They tolerate immoral behavior in their life. They tolerate wicked speech in their words, not realizing what sin is doing to them. Now, not only does sin destroy everything it touches, but it attempts to rescue oneself from sin. All those attempts to just make it better yourself, that's a losing battle. Let's say it this way. Christless religion makes things worse. That's number two. Christless religion makes it worse. It attempts to solve the problem through its laws. The chief priests, verse uh, verse 6, take the silver pieces and they say, well, you know, it's not lawful for us to put it in the treasury because it's the price of blood. So now they they form a council. They make a decision. They're going to buy a field to bury uh, strangers in. And on the surface, that appears like a pretty good thing, doesn't it? I mean, they're concerned about law keeping. They agree that the money they're keeping it themselves would be unlawful. They demonstrate where they're genuinely concerned about where to put the money. Although I've been thinking for the past week and a half, where did this money come from? There's also here kind of a genuine interest in helping people. I mean, you got to bury strangers. We don't want to throw them in, into uh, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. We don't want to throw them into the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. It would be nice to bury these strangers who die in our city. So maybe we could buy a piece of land. It's $15,000. It's a big piece of land, maybe, where we can bury these people. That seems like a kind of selfless act. But they're in the process of murdering Jesus. How upside down and twisted is their thinking to actually be concerned with law keeping while they are breaking their own laws in order to get a conviction that Jesus is not worthy of death, but they want to declare him so, so they will violate their own laws to get that murder conviction. How weird is that? How upside down. And so even in this, with the possible good things that this seems to show, you know what it's underscoring? That their hearts are horribly wicked. And in fact, it's a reminder that they elevate their laws above people. I'm all, oh, how many times did Jesus heal on the Sabbath day and it made him mad? You know, uh, one of the few times in Scripture you find God angry, or Jesus angry rather, during his ministry as an adult. It's in the early chapters of Mark. There's a man with a hand, palsied, withered hand. He can't use it. And you understand that in a society like they had, you needed both your hands if you were going to work. He can't use his hand. And so Jesus is looking at him. It's on a Saturday. And they're in the synagogue, the temple, and he's looking all around at the people. And he's looking about, and he says to the man, stretch forth your hand, and he heals their hand. He heals the man's hand. And now, well, that just set off a firestorm of anger. People are really upset. Why would he heal on the Sabbath day? Now, Jesus becomes so popular that even toward the end of his life, there's a woman that comes to him to be healed. And and the leader of the synagogue is angry and says, don't don't come on a Sabbath to be healed. He doesn't say anything to Jesus. Jesus is standing right there. He doesn't say, how dare you heal on the Sabbath day? I mean, who's going to be upset about him healing, right? I mean, 
the guy's going to take his now two good hands and beat you to death, right? I mean, so you're not going to say that. So instead, he says to the crowd, don't come on this day to be healed. You have perfectly good six days to come. They are so focused on their law keeping that people just become unimportant. Even They even exalt their animals. Jesus said, how many of you have an ox who ends up in a ditch? And you'll go down and take that ox out of a ditch. But you don't care about this guy. You don't care about this lady at all. They, they had exalted rule keeping above people. And it's, and it's not even the road out of sin. All that the law does is show you that you're evil and sinful. Not only does it attempt to solve the problem of sin through its laws, a Christless religion rejects Jesus as Savior. This was fulfilled, verse 9, that was spoken of Jeremiah the prophet, saying they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued. Now, the prophet here is actually citing two separate Old Testament prophets. And the manner of citation would be to cite the more familiar or the more important of the two. He's citing two prophets, both Jeremiah and Zechariah. He puts this under the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah is the more important prophet. And Jeremiah, in chapter 18 and 19, has these references to a potter. There's also some other things that Jeremiah is doing there, as I will show you in a moment. But Jeremiah is actually the more important prophet, so he quotes Jeremiah. The second prophet is Zechariah. And Zechariah 11, actually the citation itself comes from Zechariah. It's a little bit rearranged from the original word order, but this quotation itself comes from Zechariah, a part of a section, it's like a three or four chapter section that deals with uh, this shepherd king who will come. In fact, uh, there's a comparison going on in Zechariah between the shepherds and the shepherd king. And in Zechariah, the shepherd king is physically afflicted. Zechariah says he is smitten and pierced. You almost get a sense here when you're reading it, knowing the end of the story, exactly what Zechariah is talking about. It's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Clearly, this is a messianic text. And so Zechariah here is dealing with this shepherd king who is rejected by the people personally. And in the Zechariah story, the 30 pieces of silver are the wages of the shepherd king. He said, just give me my money. Just give me my wages. And Matthew uses the story to show Jesus' relationship to this shepherd king and how even as Israel rejected the shepherd king, that the people rejected that king, so... These people, this Israel, hundreds of years later, are rejecting their shepherd king. What you must understand in this citation is this. Even as Zechariah is demonstrating that the people rejected Jesus, I want you to understand that all Christless religions are a rejection of Jesus as Savior. Right now, there are people all over the world doing lots of very unusual things in some cases, but very mechanical things. They're things by rote. They're saying prayers that they've memorized. I'm going to say that prayer five times, and then I'll be okay. They're lighting candles. 
They're slaughtering animals and collecting the blood and even putting it on altars like you would see in an Old Testament context. They're going through these rituals hoping in some way to solve the problem of sin. And it's not working. And in doing all of that, they're looking at Jesus and saying no to Jesus. The most egregious of these, and I'm just, I need you to understand, is Catholicism. It's not another Christian denomination. Its adherents are not believers. They are actually, literally, by definition, in unbelief. And while they have a Jesus hanging on a cross, they reject him as Savior because they're hoping that their own works are enough to get them over the hump, to get them over the bar. I don't know if you've ever been in a Catholic church, a cathedral. When I was in high school, we, our, our school went on a missions trip to New York City, and it was Easter weekend. So I've, we, our, our little group found ourselves in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City on Good Friday. And what I saw there was really astounding. You see people by the thousands filing in and out of that massive building, burning candles, kneeling in front of statues. They have rosary beads in their hands or they, they are clutching some article of clothing of some person who's gone on to their reward. And they are praying and they are praying and they are praying and they are praying and their prayers are going nowhere there's no grace there. There's no gospel there. It's just death. I was in a class a couple of years ago, and I made an offhanded comment. I, I don't generally write out my illustrations when I preach. And the degree that I'm finishing uh, is a degree in preaching, and so uh, it requires you in the class to preach. So every student gets about 20 minutes to preach a sermon. You think, Pastor, you can preach for only 20 minutes. Why don't you do that every Sunday? Because I don't want to. So that's, you know, I'm the pastor. But I was preaching along, and in the middle of my sermon, it, it, it crossed, something crossed my mind. It just fit perfectly. It was a story about Mother Teresa. Now, take the religious part out of it. Mother Teresa was a wonderful woman, right? I mean, she... She lived in a horrible place in Calcutta. She worked among the poorest of the poor. She went to places that true born-again believers will often will not go to themselves, even though they should. And she was, from a human sense, a wonderful lady. But she was not a believer. She just wasn't. She didn't believe in Jesus, not like we do, not like the Bible teaches. She's not a woman you should expect to see in heaven. Because good people don't go to heaven. Sinners saved by grace go to heaven. So I'm telling the story, and actually the part of the story that was important is that after her death, uh, a publisher uh, actually published her memoirs posthumously. And they contained a, a section where she actually complains that all during her years of work that she would pray and God would never answer her prayers. 
And I was just commenting on that that's not unreasonable. Why would God answer her prayer? She's not a Christian. She's not one of his. You only become a Christian through the gospel. You only become one of God's children through the gospel. Being born doesn't make you one of God's children. It makes you part of his creation. You're only his child through the gospel. Well, sitting in in our class was a man who was taking the class as a, a for credits, but uh, just it was a free class for him. He pastors a church here in North Carolina on the other side of the state, and it's not a church anything like ours. Uh, it was interesting to meet him. He, he, we just have a complete disagreement over lots of Bible passages, how you apply them. It was a little weird to meet him in the class uh, because I didn't think he would want to take a class in the place seminary where I was where I'm going. But here he was. And the time came at the end of the sermon. It was in the middle of the message. It's 20 minutes long, somewhere in the 10-minute mark, you know, and the end of the message comes, and and uh, they get to critique this other students. And, you know, their critiques were nice and kind and gracious. And we got to the end of the critiques, and this man raised his hand, and he said, uh, he said, uh, Matt, I have, a, I have a little thing I want to say. You know, when you mentioned Mother Teresa there, um, I, the moment you said that, I just stopped listening. All I could focus in on how harsh that was, how harsh that is. And he said, I, I, you know, if, if I said that to my congregation, I, I wouldn't be able to preach there the next Sunday. People would be so angry with me. And now what am I supposed to do to the guy? You know, I'm looking at him and I'm going, well, brother, I'm sorry for you, you know. Really? You can't get up in your congregation and preach that somebody who rejected the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again, though that person did good works, you can't get up and preach that that person's not in heaven? Do, do they believe the gospel in your congregation? Now, I'm not saying this. This is what I'm thinking. That would have been rude. Instead, I looked at the professor and said, would you like to handle this, you know? This is, this is not for me to handle. If I'd been the professor, I would have handled it. And I know, again, it kind of offends our sensibilities to think good people go to hell. But this is the problem with sin. It causes you to reject Jesus. It leads to a rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior of the life. He's either your savior or he's not. You're either a sinner on your way to hell, saved by grace or not. And that's what turns you toward heaven or not. And if it's not that, then friends, we have no gospel. If it's not that we have no hope, we have no grace, why are we even here? If we don't believe that our Lord and Savior hung on a cross to die in our place for our sins, if we don't accept that, if that's not the very heartbeat of this church, that this is not a church. And we are not God's people. But praise God, we do believe that. We said it this morning in our creed. This is what we believe. And if you realize what's actually going on here with Judas and the priests and what Matthew is saying, then it leads me to my third point, of which will be very short. It justifies God's judgment. You see, this is what's happening in Jeremiah and, and Zechariah, but particularly Jeremiah. What's going on in that, in that book is 
is Jeremiah is showing why God is going to judge Israel. Remember, this is before Babylon destroys Jerusalem in the mid-6th century B.C. In, in fact, in the Old Testament, the people rejected God's rule over them and turned away from him. So likewise, these people are turning away from Jesus and rejecting his rule over them. And just as the prophecy of Jeremiah demonstrates that God must judge Israel, so what these people are doing is a demonstrative that God must judge them. Matthew is making clear that even while Jesus is about to die on a cross, the real judgment is falling on Israel and on Judas and on Israel's leaders. It's going to fall on them. They're even going to say it prophetically. Let, let his blood be on our children. Oh, what a terrible thing to say. So Matthew makes this part of his fulfillment series. Twelve times he says this fulfills part of an Old Testament text, not a fulfilling in a one-for-one -one fulfillment like prophecies go. I think in this case, more like a Jewish way of thinking of fulfillment. He's just saying he's linking the two events together and saying this is like that. Matthew is demonstrating that Israel deserves judgment. And my friends, this is what a Christless religion does. It sets up laws over people that must not be broken. It rejects Jesus as Savior and justifies God's judgment on those who follow such a religion. Now, I began this sermon by talking about a puzzle, a Rubik's Cube. It's the problem of sin. And it can be solved but it can't be solved by you. And I told you about the three characters in the story, all sinners, all wicked. You have the background behind the scenes is Satan. And then out in front, you have Judas and the priests and elders of Israel. Who's missing from this story? I read eight verses in the New Testament from the Gospels. And do you know Jesus isn't mentioned once? There's a hymn in verse 3 that refers to Jesus. There's that pronoun. And maybe the hymn in verse 9, it refers to Jesus. Maybe not. He's the solution to the problem, but not anywhere to be found. And I leave you with this, my friends. If you're thinking about your own life, how are you handling this problem of sin? Are you trying to do it yourself? Or are you turning to Jesus? We sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. I love the hymn writer wrote, the arm of flesh will fail you. Oh, it will. You dare not trust your own. We turn to our friend, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, help us now as we go to a time of reflection, just a few moments of reflection. May we recognize, Lord, may we recognize the importance of turning to Christ, turning to our Savior, even in times when it feels like we can't even turn to him. Before I finish praying, how many of you say, Pastor, you know, I'm battling sin right now. I'm trying to solve that Rubik's Cube in my heart over some sin issues. And if, and if that's you, friend, you're not alone. I imagine if we're all honest, lots of hands would go up. But right now, this is what the Holy Spirit is talking to you about. I, I, don't, I don't want to know the nature of the sin. That's not important. I just want to know that that battle's going on in your heart. When you say, Pastor, pray for me, that's me right now. Just slip your hand up. Yes, brother. Yes, sir. Yes. 
You, you know what's amazing? You see older saints raising their hand, saying, pray for me. Yes, brother, I see that. And anybody else, pastor, pray for me. Now, maybe you'll say, you know, I'm really not battling against my sin because I, I've been trying to do it myself. And now I realize that was a big mistake. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, my, my attempts at helping myself have failed, and I need real help from Christ. Maybe it's salvation. Is there anybody here that say, you know, I'm not even saved? I'm not a believer? Pray for me. Anybody like that? You slip up your hand. I'll pray for you. You say, I'm a Christian. How many of you say, I've been trying to do it myself and I've been failing? I'd love to pray for you. Anybody like that? Just slip your hand up and I'll pray for you. Anybody at all? I've been trying to solve this problem and I'm failing. Sin is bringing me to a state of desperation and hopelessness. Lord, help us to leave here with a renewed emphasis on following Christ and leaving sin behind. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play. And as she does, you go to the Lord in prayer.